Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Long before the nonstop stressors of the past two years, Gina Cho was a vocal advocate for the well-being of lawyers. It started when she realized how meditation and mindfulness could help her deal with the stress of practicing bankruptcy law. Since that time, her message about the urgency of wellness for lawyers has resonated throughout the industry, thanks in large part to a best-selling book, The Anxious Lawyer. Gina is a regular contributor to legal and traditional media, and she also speaks and offers training and workshops to law firms and bar associations around the country. In today's conversation, we learn about Gina's journey to law, which involves, by the way, a long-running TV show, how her meditation practice started, when she realized mindfulness had broader application to the well-being issues facing the legal profession, and how it can make the profession more inclusive. Enjoy. Hi, Gina. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm fine. Thank you. Where am I finding you these days? In California? I am in California, yes. How are things out there in the what seems like the interminable height of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think things are as normal as they're going to get, at least temporarily. You know, the schools are still open, which I'm super grateful for. and just kind of taking it moment by moment. That's kind of all you can do these days, isn't it? Yeah. You know, every time we think we're past it, it comes back. You must deal with that in your practice. This must have tremendous impact on, well, we know it has a tremendous impact on the mental health and well-being of people. So you must see it in your mindfulness practice. I assume more now than ever. Yeah. Yeah, I am both seeing it in my own life and then I'm also seeing it with the clients that I work with for sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You've talked about some of the motivators for becoming a lawyer to begin with, being the child of immigrants and creating an interest in access to justice. Talk to us a little bit about that. What was it that caused you to become a lawyer in the first place? Uh, You know, I think like so many, um, I grew up watching Law and Order, and that's actually how I learned to speak English. Um, And, you know, Law and Order paints this very idealized picture of how our justice system works, where you know, the bad guy, I'm using my air quotation mark here, always goes to jail at the end of, you know, conclusion of one hour. But, uh, you know, being an immigrant, um, especially an immigrant from another country where we didn't speak the English, you know, I saw my parents get taken advantage of a lot. And I put two and two together and thought, okay, if I can become a prosecutor, then I can, you know, correct a lot of the injustices of the world. So yeah, I went on to become a lawyer. And then I became an assistant state attorney. And I did that for a few years. When you're an assistant state attorney, if I've got this right, you did misdemeanors, but you also did domestic cases. I did. Yeah. I would think that would be a very stressful type of practice because of the stress the clients are under. Yeah. I don't know if it's domestic violence or child cases or whatever, but that must have had an impact on you as their attorney as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that being an ASA taught me was, you know, of course, seeing the glaring issues and flaws in our criminal justice system and what I very quickly realized. And mind you, I was, my degree was in psychology and undergrads. So I have some understanding of, you know, what 
helps people when they're in crisis mode. And, you know, clearly when people are in these domestic violence type of situations, I felt as though jail was rarely a solution because they're not, you know, it's punitive. So we're sort of putting the bad guy in jail. But, you know, often the aggressor would go back into the household and then I would see these cases over and over and over again. It was very clear that they needed some serious, you know, therapy and counseling which of course our criminal justice system generally don't provide. Um, so it was a really frustrating experience. And then this was in Florida, but there's a law that basically says if you're driving without a valid license, that's a misdemeanor. And so, you know, for you and me, if our license expires and we get pulled off, you know, the officer just you know, cites us a, a warning and we get our you know driver's license renewed and that's the end of it. But how that law was often being used was against undocumented immigrants who, of course, can't get a valid driver's license. So, you know, again, I thought that wasn't the intent of the law, right? The intent of the law is to make sure that people, you know, have a valid driver's license, but it was just being used in this. And of course, being an immigrant myself, you know, I just had a tremendous amount of empathy for the people who are generally in Florida working the fields, you know, picking our fruits and vegetables and doing the labor that, you know, frankly, a lot of Americans didn't want to do. So I just it caused a lot of internal struggle because it was, you know, very much against my ideals in terms of how I thought our criminal justice system should work. And then, you know, and as you alluded to, I just came into contact with so much human suffering that, you know, that's not something law school prepares you for. No, I my daughter was a public defender for a number of years doing both misdemeanor work in Brooklyn and then capital crimes defense work in Mississippi. And so I, I, I know from talking to her, that struggle you're talking about, how did you cope with that at that time? I know you, you left the ASA's office and started a commercial bankruptcy practice. Was that sort of the impetus to do that or? Yeah, I, you know, I, I just couldn't figure out a way to internally resolve that conflict. And I also, I was just really lacking a lot of tools, which I didn't even know at the time was something that I was lacking in terms of how to manage the stress and anxiety and also, you know, how to witness the suffering of others without losing myself in it. Yeah. So eventually I quit and I moved to California and my husband and I, now my husband and I started a bankruptcy law practice in San Francisco. But if I understand it correctly, you're representing individuals or small businesses that are struggling. That in and of itself is a clients who are stressed and are dealing with. So I, I, I can't imagine you reduce the stress the practice was bringing a ton, maybe some. You know, I think a different type of stress, you know, certainly when I was doing bankruptcy law, I felt as if there was more of an alignment in terms of, you know, the positive impact I wanted to have in the world, which is to help people get out of dire circumstances. And, you know, I think people have these, maybe like a misunderstanding or sort of like a caricature of the type of people who end up filing for bankruptcy. You know, they think about the very wealthy, you know, business person trying to like pull one over on the system, or they think about, you know, these major corporations filing for bankruptcy. But the truth of the matter is, 
a lot of us are not that many steps away from needing the assistance of, you know, bankruptcy. And I just saw so many people who reminded me of myself. And often people end up filing for bankruptcy because they went through some trauma, whether that be, you know, significant periods of illnesses or unexpected deaths or divorces or, you know, business deals gone awry. So there was certainly witnessing a lot of human suffering. And, you know, it wasn't unusual for the clients to just sit in my office and weep. But I was there was something that I can do, right, using our legal system to get them, you know, at least financially out of the circumstances that they were in. That's one way you coped with it, the ability to do something to help. Were there other coping mechanisms you developed or created for yourself to help deal with the emotion associated with the practice? Yeah, eventually, you know, I I think I coped with it like a lot of attorneys do by working harder and to tell myself that I shouldn't feel these things and to kind of ignore it, you know, which doesn't really work. But eventually I did find my way into practicing mindfulness and meditation and that really transformed how I practice law. So talk to us a little bit about that, how you found your way there, because a, a lot of lawyers struggle, as you know, because you've now built a practice and a reputation around mindfulness in the practice, including your book, The Anxious Lawyer. But an awful lot of us don't find our way there. So how did you find your way to this practice? I sort of reached the point in my life where the way that I was practicing law no longer felt sustainable. And perhaps a lot of listeners can relate to this. You know, I was falling asleep thinking about work. I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about work. I wake up in the morning thinking about work. You know, I jokingly tell people that I started meditating daily because I got tired of showering with all of my clients. You know, I would be in the shower (laughs) and going through my client list and having these, you know, fantasy conversations with my clients about, you know, like, why would you do that? I told you not to do that. Or, you know, reliving some hearing that I lost 10 years ago. And it was really starting to impact my health. So I started to just have panic attacks. I had these persistent headaches. My stomach would ache. I had really bad insomnia. You know, I just felt like my body was starting to fall apart. And then I would go to the doctor and he would say, well, there's nothing physically wrong with you. This is all stress, which I guess on one hand is reassuring. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, what do I do with that information? And, you know, at a point where I was just really starting to notice, you know, I was starting to notice that I was engaging in like avoidant behaviors because a lot of times coming into contact with my clients, like seeing them face to face or even talking to them on the phone was so painful for me. I would try to get them to like, just send me an email, you know, which is very limited because I didn't want them to cry in front of me because I would just feel, you know, my heart ache. And I, I, I just didn't have the coping mechanisms to be able to deal with it. And I'm like, and a bunch of other things happen. But eventually, you know, one day I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and she's a therapist. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I confided in another human being, and I told her what was happening to me. You know, I told about the inability to sort of shut my mind off and, you know, this constant rumination about work and this nonstop feeling of anxiety. And, you know, I just felt like my whole body was this ball of nerve. And I I also wasn't feeling like myself, you know, I just kind of felt like my emotions were sort of muted. 
and being a therapist, she very kindly listened to me and said, you know, I want to be a good friend to you here. And I don't want to like diagnose you. But when she said, you know, it sounds like you really need to go get help. And I remember looking at her and being like, what does help look like? I am a successful, high functioning lawyer. Like I don't, you know, I didn't see myself uh, weirdly enough, you know, I, I didn't think that I had like clinical depression or, you know, I just felt like, well, everything is fine, right? I have this law practice that's thriving. I'm married to this amazing human, like everything in my life felt good. So I also felt as though I didn't have a right to feel bad and I felt badly all the time. But, you know, she recommended that I go and check out this anxiety management clinic at Stanford. And so on one of those nights where I could not fall asleep, I Googled the clinic and I started to learn a little bit more about anxiety disorders. And I remember reading all the symptoms of an anxiety disorder and going, oh, my gosh, it's like somebody read my brain (laughs) and put all the (laughs) symptoms together. And that's, you know, how I found my way into mindfulness and meditation. I went through a very intensive, you know, I think it was like a three or four month group treatment program. Uh, That was really helpful because I got to see, you know, other really successful, high functioning people who are also struggling with high levels of anxiety. And I got to learn all about, you know, what is happening in the body when I'm experiencing anxiety, and then just a ton of tools for how to manage it. And so that's sort of what led me to my journey into mindfulness and meditation. So it's a fascinating story, and I'm sure one that's going to resonate with our listeners. But it certainly was resonating with me as I'm listening to you describe uh, many years of my life. Fortunately, back in the day now. So you 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 begin your journey into mindfulness and meditation, and at some point you make a decision to use your experience and use your training and use your tools to help others rather than just fix your fix. I'm using air quotes here yourself and dealing with it yourself. What was that thought process like that you said, I can scale this, I can deliver it broadly, because that's not the normal path most people would take, I I don't think. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, I think sometimes when I talk to people, they think I wrote a you know whole business plan and had a ten year plan. <laughs> it wasn't it anything. Never, never happens never that is. way, does it? Uh, so when I took the group, you know, anxiety management class at the end. Of, so the thing about anxiety is you start to learn right these situations that trigger a lot of anxiety. For example, public speaking it gets better the more you practice it, right? So you bring all the tools that you learn in class and you continue to practice it in these situations that cause anxiety. And for some people, it was like going on a date. For others, it was like talking to a random stranger at the grocery line. You know, so these are social anxieties, right? These are anxieties caused by social contact. And my number one fear at the time, which I know is a big fear for a lot of people, was public speaking. I was petrified of it. And at the end of the group therapy session, the therapist said, okay, you know, you have to commit to doing the thing that you're afraid of. So you're continuing to evolve and really learning to tackle and manage your anxiety uh, rather than allowing the anxiety to control your life. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to do one public speaking engagement for 
a month, you know, one a month for a whole year. And then at the end of the year, we would go back and meet with the therapist just to check in and see how things were going. And of course, being the good student that I always have, and I was like, all right, I have to do my homework and I have to do it very diligently. (laughs) And at the time, I was the chair of the bankruptcy section at the San Francisco Bar Association. You know, so I was putting CLE programs together all the time. And I knew that, you know, I could talk about some aspect of consumer bankruptcy law or, you know, small business bankruptcy, but that just didn't have any appeal to me. And I also realized that the topic I really wanted to talk about, which was lawyer well-being, was, you know, and, and this was probably almost a decade ago, just wasn't really happening that much. You know, I would go to the CLEs and you might have somebody who gets up and talks about his journey, you know, recovering from some type of addiction. Um, but that, you know, I felt like that was sort of the only example of lawyer well-being that was out there. And also, I felt like I learned so many tools. And I felt like not only did I gain a better understanding, and so to a certain extent, overcoming the anxiety, but I started to feel with this genuine sense of well-being and joy, which, you know, you talk about joy with lawyers, and they're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? And I thought the way that so many lawyers practice law, where they feel like they have to sacrifice their well-being, that they have to sacrifice their families. And, you know, it's almost like, like they practice it with so little joy. And I really wanted lawyers to see a different way of practicing law, where the work itself is meaningful, where they can have a sense of belonging, and also, you know, actually have fun in their practice and experience joy. And most importantly, have the practice be sustainable. So, you know, I just just reached out and said, I'd like to do a program on lawyer well-being. And so they said, sure, that sounds great. And so I did a few at the Bar Association. Then, of course, lawyers come to your CLE and then they really like it. I mean, they apparently did because they went back to their firm and their you know, bar associations. And so I started just getting more and more inquiries. So I think that first year I did like 12 and then, you know, I did 12 the first year. And then the second year I did maybe double that. And at some point my husband said, you know, you're spending an awful lot of time traveling around the country doing these workshops. Um, Maybe you should make it a profession (laughs) or a vocation. You know, and I, I mean, my husband and I, we still had our law practice until just November of last year. So we still had our law practice for a really long time. But I did transition out of practicing law because, you know, we also had a baby a few years ago. So it just wasn't practical to try to do all of it together at once. I want to tease out a couple of things you said, because it's so interesting to me. So you, you started at a moment in time where people weren't talking about well-being for lawyers. Yes, addiction and particularly alcohol and drugs has been around and discussed for a long time in the profession. But this concept of joy or well-being at the time you started, I think you said, was not really one being discussed. And yet, from your description, you seem to have struck a chord with lawyers almost immediately. And I would have guessed it would have been a longer road to hoe than that, given the normal skepticism and reaction of lawyers that go, ah, that's new age mumbo jumbo. Were you surprised with the reaction you got? First place, do I have that right, that you sort of hit a chord? And were you surprised at that? 
Yeah. Um, you know, so at the same time as I started doing these workshops, I also started writing a lot, which is also how I sort of process my world. And it's one of the things that I really enjoy. So I started writing a column for Above the Law. And, you know, it was a mixed bag. <laughs> I mean, there were definitely the lawyers who were like, what is this woman talking about? Joy? Like, hello, we're practicing law here. If you're a happy lawyer, you're not doing it right. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is probably something that I started to realize more recently is how to stand firmly in what you know and what your truth is and how much space to give to the naysayers, right? And, you know, I think this is often true when you're trying to, like, push against the stream and to make changes. And, you know, and, and I see this journey playing out in so many different areas, you know, not only just lawyer well-being, but, you know, when it comes to DEI or just a lot of these other areas in the legal profession and how much space to give to the critics. And so I really had to like learn to focus on the people who did resonate with my story. And, you know, there were definitely, at, you know, in every CLE where I always open by talking about my own journey. And, you know, at the end of it, I almost always have a bunch of people that come up and say, you know, everything that you described are things that I also experienced. And I'm so glad you're talking about it because I assumed that I was alone. And that's really, I think, the most insidious part of lawyer stress and anxiety is that there's often this feeling that I am alone in my experience. Even if you're working on a team, right? even if you're working in a law firm with 700 other lawyers and you're all sort of going through a collective experience, there's often this feeling that I'm alone in my experience. And that's really one of the things that I wanted to start to break down. That was also the thing that stopped me from getting help for such a long time because I thought, well, I don't know anybody else that's struggling with a mental health issue. <laughs> and it's not because I didn't know anybody else that was struggling with a mental health issue is that no one was talking about it. And, you know, I feel like now certainly there are so many more lawyers who are much more open and vocal about their mental illness or, you know, mental health struggles than ever before. I, I know you do a lot of work with law firms and practicing lawyers. I don't know if you do much work at the law school level, but what advice would you give law schools in terms of their curriculum or the tools they can provide the law students to prepare them for this side of practice? Because law school is sort of trial by fire, right? It's very competitive and it's a bunch of type A folks and you're focused on contracts or torts or whatever it is. But I don't sense that law schools do a great job of preparing the students for the stress and the, the emotional side of the practice. Do you work much with law schools? And if so, what advice do you or would you give them? Uh, yeah, I do do some work with law schools. And, you know, I think you kind of hit it on the head is how to prepare students for the emotional and uh, practicing law. And I think that needs to include, you know, emotional intelligence. And what you know, I think a lot of people would call like soft skills, but I like to call them critical skills because they're, you know, really life's necessary skills. And even just the way that law school do grading. And I, I think this is less frequent now, but, you know, when I went to law school, we were graded on a curve. So we were pitted against each other. And so there was this competition to see who was the smartest and the brightest. Well, that's not a very good way to go through law school because at the end of it, you're going to join some sort of an organization, most likely, where you have to learn to work collaboratively with other people. And if the way that you always approached it was, well, I have to be the smartest person in the room, then you're not really 
listening deeply to other people. So, you know, even just teaching law students things like how to listen. Um, you know, I think some coaching skills would be really useful to law students in terms of doing client intakes or just how they communicate with their peers or, you know, their supervising lawyers. And then also to give offer tools for how to manage the emotions that can and will come up in law practice. So, you know, for example, like I remember taking torts and, you know, you read these horrific cases where people lose their limbs, they lose their family members, I mean, awful, awful stuff. And I remember look, reading at these cases going, oh my God, this is awful. Like the dad's driving the car with like his entire family and all the family members perish except for the dad. And these are horrible. And not once did the professor even just pause to acknowledge the horrific nature of these cases. And that's the torts class I remember. Yeah, that's right. exactly. And I think that's crazy. Like, because at some point, right, that dad may be sitting in your office who lost his entire family because of a vehicle defect, right? And a manufacturing defect. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I learned how to draft a complaint, maybe. <laughs> but I did not learn how to be with this human that is just going through, you know, one of the darkest points in this person's life. And, you know, and that level of trauma that your client's experience will vary. And even if it isn't some traumatic tort cases, you know, even if you're like helping your client negotiate contract, often people are driven by emotions, right? Like their actions are driven by emotion. So if you can have that awareness and see like, oh, my client is demanding this, this is important to my client because these are his emotions behind it, or this is influenced by his past experience. And then you can more easily help navigate and help guide your clients towards an outcome that they want. Even just basic things like civility or, you know, like negotiation. There are just so many things in law school that I felt like we didn't learn. Oh, indeed. That's so true. That's so true. You made some interesting points as well in some of your writings about the connection between mindfulness and diversity and equity and inclusion, which I had not seen that connection before reading what you've written. Talk to us a little bit about that, sort of how do you see this connection and how does mindfulness help on the DEI side of the profession? Sure. On so many levels, you know, I think on an individual level, having a deep mindfulness practice has helped me to sort of tease out and say, okay, this particular experience I'm having, is it shaped or influenced by some level of, you know, sexism or racism or whatever levels of isms or these thoughts that I'm having, my sort of self-held belief about what I can do in the world or what I can't do, how much of that limitation comes from these barriers and boundaries that I experience because I'm an Asian female, right, versus my white male counterpart. So I think there is just some reflection on that. And then also from a different perspective, also really starting to see my own bias and seeing, you know, these deeply held beliefs about others starting to explore that, which can be really hard, you know, like when you bump up against a part of yourself that you're not proud of, you know, which a lot of times these conversations around DEI can trigger, 
how do I meet myself where I am and move past that layer of self-judgment and self-criticism and then sort of shift my behavior and my understanding? And then, you know, I think sort of on a macro or, or on an organizational level, right, it requires awareness. It requires so much awareness to see, you know, everything from how we write the job description, you know, the hiring practice does, the review practice, you know, like just in every aspect of of in a law from life, like these issues permeate. And if you're not always aware, right, that these issues are influencing, then there's no opportunity to change it. And then also, you know, there are lots of interesting research that shows mindfulness practices, specifically practices around loving kindness, meditation can help people decrease their implicit bias because you learn or you're practicing how to extend compassion towards others, which then, of course, right, leads to that bridge of gaining a better understanding of the other. I think that's fascinating. And I, I had not made that connection, as I said before, reading some of, the, some of the work you've done. And I think we struggle so much with DEI in the profession that this seems like an important tool to me to help us move that ball forward. I'm changing the subject just a little bit, and I, I know we're about out of time. But has your advice to your clients or to the people you're working with changed as the pandemic has continued to roll along? Because we seem to be in a time where the world, apart from the practice, is full of unrelenting stressors, the pandemic, issues around social justice, our political system, and the put whatever adjectives you want to around that mess. It's a lot for people to cope with that seems more intense than probably when you started this practice 10 years ago. How has your advice or your work evolved in light of these stressors? And maybe it hasn't evolved. Maybe it's just more important than ever. Yeah. The thing that really feels important to say is the thing that I never really talked about before, but I'm talking about more directly is trauma. Because I think that's really the descriptor for what we're individually and collectively experiencing. So when I talk about trauma, especially with lawyers, often because we're using our analytical brain, I'll often get statements like, well, like I have a job, I have a roof over my head, like I have nothing to complain about. I didn't really experience trauma. My best friend, you know, she lost her mom to COVID, therefore she experienced trauma. And, you know, trauma is not a comparison contest, you know, like your trauma is your trauma. And I think we're collectively as a society trying to figure out how do we begin to process and heal trauma, especially when the underlying thing that's causing the trauma hasn't been resolved, right? It's still ongoing, you know, and I, I don't really have great answers. It is something that I'm learning more about, that I'm doing a deep dive in and also, you know, noticing how it impacts my life. Because also the trauma, there's this like collective. So if you have trauma from your past that you haven't resolved, and then there's an additional trauma that happens, your reaction to the trauma, the current trauma is exponentially greater, right? Because there are these old traumas. And I also really worry about the lawyers who, you know, like in, in addition to all the traumas that you named, come into contact with additional trauma as part of their daily work. You know, whether that be their you know, public defenders or, you know, prosecutors or, you know, PI lawyers or estate planning lawyers, immigration lawyers, right? Like you named the flavor. 
So that is definitely something that I am talking more explicitly about in my presentations and also in my coaching work is to just name it and say like, wow, what you're experiencing sounds like a trauma response. I think, you know, everyone could really benefit from just gaining a little bit of an understanding of trauma, even from an organizational perspective, right? Because I think then the question is, okay, now we have a body of however many thousands of employees that have all experienced trauma, some greater than the other. And how do we support them in their And I don't even want to use the word healing because, you know, that actually just feels so distant. Like, I think we need to, like, talk about what's right here, right now. And it may just be to, like, really acknowledge and say, like, wow, you know, this thing that you've lived through that we're still currently living through is really, really hard. And how do we just create a little more space where we can be more human with each other? You know, when, you know, your team says, like, how are you? Instead of just saying, fine, you can be just more honest and say, you know, I'm really struggling. And then, you know, then how do we meet that person who's struggling? And those are particularly challenging, both in this time and with lawyers. You're in a challenging moment with a challenging uh, base of people to work with. But listen, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to you and the conversation and how much I appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Thank you, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.